Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got uh, myself, Ron Hayes. Jason Loftus and Michael Morrow coming to us from Alaska and Utah. I am at home in Wyoming this week. Been on a three-week, well, two-and-a-half-week filming tour of Montana and took a little bit of time in the midst of that to get out and visit Yellowstone and uh, a spot that I just found out about in northern Montana. And I will be doing a post. I met a ton of you guys out in the field, and it is always fun to shoot with uh, with new folks, and a visit with with folks that I haven't had the opportunity to meet face to face, and just see how things are going, see where you're at, and uh, helps me to know that I'm in the right spot. If you're there too, how about you, Jason? What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, I've just been. Uh, getting out as much as I can. I came home from my September elk rut trip and had about three days of work, and then I was supposed to go up to Anchorage. And uh, that got canceled because the season ended a little earlier than expected. So I took advantage of that time off that I had and went and found some more elk to play with. Uh, so I just got home from that on Sunday, and you know now I'm just dumping files and trying to kind of get into that editing mode a little bit here before the deer rut kicks in. So You had kind of a magic morning or magic day one day out of that trip i think you and you and kelly actually did a podcast in the field about that which will be what kind of a a short and extra podcast but you're going to want to tune into that based on just what jason i I was talking to him on the phone and he sounded like a a little kid on christmas morning (laughs) is, is what i can liken it to yeah, it was a lot like that, actually. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. So we talk all about it in that little extra podcast. So if you guys want to hear about the craziness that went down for us on that trip, just uh, tune into that. That one should be a you, video Mike? podcast that should have uh, all your photos highlighted. <laughs> You're going to put the pressure on me. i get my butt <laughs> editing then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shouldn't be too hard because I got the excitement out of a text message. Ron was talking to you and felt that I just got a text message from you and that seemed like you were awful excited. Yeah. Yeah. It was really amazing. I was pumped. I've just been doing the normal thing. Just looking for moose. Jason alluded to it. He was going to come up and shoot moose with me. And we've got this crazy uh, snowstorm that rolled into town way earlier than, you know, watching the news, they say this was unprecedented to get that much snow this early so normally you could get snow up there where we filmed the moose and it would be two or three inches and, you know, gone the next day and or gone a couple of days later. This was about 20 inches of snow that fell and it was just still went up there. You know, it's still the rut. It's still the moose rut. But I was talking to uh, one of my buddies here who is a certified moose and sheep nut. And he was saying, this is kind of unprecedented. He had no idea what to expect. I mean, this guy knows moose, right? And he just knows, okay, in these situations, you're going to find a moose here. But when 
all that snow happened and the rut's still going, that had never happened before. So he's like, I just don't know. Are they going to go seek cover? Are they going to continue to rut? And what we found out was some were doing what we expected. They were in the normal spots, but it was super hard to get there. You know, normally we can get up there and be to a shooting spot within, you know, whether you're walking or riding a bike or whatever, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, you're, you're at a spot, right? Well, it took me, oh man, I would say an hour and a half in that deep snow. We were the first ones out on the trail. So the only, the only marks in the trail walking out that morning were, uh, you know, you cross a moose print every now and then. So you're just busting through 20 inches of snow, not busting through. You're just moving 20 inches of snow with every step. And, um, it just took forever. So it just, when I called you, I was just like this, while we're going to, you could get pictures. It's not going to be those typical, really pretty fall pictures and it's going to be snow. And then the other bad thing that happened was four or five days of sunshine right after that. So you get white snow with sun. It's just so, I mean, you can still come away with some good images, but nothing I think what you were looking for. So it, I think it was a good call and, um, there'll be an extra for sure. So hopefully right. if it doesn't go crazy <laughs> between now and then uh, <laughs> with more snowstorms or whatever, but that's it. So I moved to a different location. So you go up to, I don't even know what the elevation is up there. It's probably a couple thousand feet, but you get down in the Anchorage area, that elevation, which is very close to sea level. Um, there's no, there was snow down here, but that's all gone. And there's actually still fall color down here. So, uh, we moved into those areas. The problem with those areas is it's super hard to find moose. You know, where I'm going up high, you can sit up glassing points and find moose and have kind of a a target to go for. Down here, it's just flat and, you know, basically you just ride your bike till you find a moose, which can happen, but you're not, you know, up there too, you might be able to glass and see oh here's a big moose up here or here's a moose with four cows over here or here's a you know you just kind of pick and choose your options down here you just you just go till you find a moose and and hopefully find something that you can shoot so it's still fun and it's still productive but it's a lot more iffy as far as actually getting shots yeah it'd be a, it, the ultimate in my mind would be to get up there and have some good fall color shooting and then have a decent snowstorm come so you can get a little bit of both, you know I mean? If a guy was trying to ch pick and choose, you know, cause I did see some really neat, I have seen some really neat snowy moose photos coming from up there, which are pretty cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you could do, that would be, that would be the norm, right? Get a two, three, four inch snow and then it would melt off after a couple of days and you could, you could take advantage of that. But this storm came from the north, so it brought just cold, cold temperatures. And then with that clear sky, I mean, we were waking up every morning to like 26 to 28 degrees. Wow. So that just wasn't melting. In fact, it's not. I mean, I think that snow is there now till next spring. If really? you look from Anchorage at the mountains, it's they're just all white. So hmm. It's been that you, in the mornings here, but. It's getting still getting up to about eighty in the afternoon. Yeah, no, I I mean we're lucky to get out of the forties hmm. here, 
So I, I think it's just going to be a cold, colder winter. And I've still got to drive the van down south, so I'm like sitting on pins and needles trying to figure <laughs> out this drive through the Yukon might be exciting. Yeah. You've got to go north to get south, right? Yeah, you got to drive up towards Fairbanks to a place a couple, called Toke. A couple passes. Lots of, I've been thinking about it. You know, you, I, I don't know. I shouldn't worry about it just because it is what it is and I'll have to do whatever it is, right? And I, this van is not four-wheel drive. It's just two-wheel drive, but I have chains, so I can probably be fine. It's just, you think about it, those roads coming up. And the other thing about coming up is I came up in, I don't remember, was it May or June? I think it was June. You're talking some seriously long days, right? Mm-hmm. So sunlight forever. Well, going back, I mean, one of the big things up here is people talk about, or on the news every night, just like they do a weather forecast, they do a, a daylight. They tell you the number of hours of daylight left. So as of yesterday, we're now under 11 hours of daylight. And it drops by five and a half minutes every day. So you figure within 10 days, we're almost an hour that you're going to lose. So now you're down to 10 hours. So then it starts cutting into your drive time. So then you can't, you know, while you can drive at night, I'm not that excited to drive through, what, Yukon and Alberta and BC and all those areas where there's wildlife rich areas. You just don't want to run the risk of hitting something on the road. So yeah, we'll see. It's going to be an adventure. It'll be fun to to film and you know that's the other thing is it might be kind of cool it might find cool stuff to film between here and there which would be a lot of fun you know there's a place where there's some stone sheep there's a lot of elk Mm -hmm. between here and there there's lots of other you know other sheep to shoot so bears lynx yeah bears lynx would be really cool right well one thing that i did not mention is uh tanner perks and i Uh, perks of the outdoors he's a utah photographer a great young photographer but tanner and i have been on a couple trips together and we have struck out almost every time we had a good bear day uh, once and then the rest of the time we've kind of struck out as far as what we were looking for and we finally hit a morning where you know kind of akin or likened to what jason what you guys ran into at least initially uh, before daylight there was fog over this whole lake and we found a, a good bull that was working a, a ridge line so we were able to get in position to get some awesome silhouettes and and tanner got you know the not only the color of the the fog over the lake but he also got the the pre-dawn light coming over the ridges as well um so we you know as happens all the time, you're standing there with two people and you both shoot the same subject differently. Uh, so it's always fun to see what everybody's interpretation, what their thought process was when those things happen. And then later that day, we ran into a, a bear, um, had a good shoot with a sow and, and yearling cub. And uh, prior to that, had gotten on to some other elk. So it was a, it was a good trip. And then we actually twice in this in Yellowstone National Park twice we had elk to ourselves which hardly ever happens and even this time of year where it's a lot slower still to have elk you know or any subject to yourself is a is a special time in that area we were closing the distance on the second 
heard in uh, when we who was it that was was it Jake Davis that was talking about the squirrel middens? So we got to <laughs> this patch of dark timber and we decided to cut through the dark timber and use it for cover as we were closing the distance on these elk and we can get you know to the edge of the timber we're still behind cover and you know they're no wiser anyway we get in the middle of this dark timber and there was this squirrel midden that was completely shredded i mean all the way around the tree in a big circle this big swath of carnage where a bear had dug it up and there was a, a large boar in that same area the day before so it kind of turned into one of those look over your shoulder get a couple photographs of elk look over your shoulder <laughs> make sure somebody's checking back all the time uh, but we had a we had a good shoot and no incidents that way um you weren't was, you weren't you weren't carrying around any acorns in your back pocket were you negative no i was acorn free <laughs> Uh. <laughs> yeah and then i got accused of uh on instagram of photographing in an elk sanctuary or refuge <laughs> i was yeah i was a little taken aback i was like i don't see any fence lines or um, no Just, what was yeah. it they think you're shooting captive elk yeah because the the shot was just turned out you know it was almost too perfect but that's exactly the way it was. I mean, it. we had it pre-dawn and just in the right spot at the right time. Well, that's but, today's world, right? Because people don't is. think that they think it's all fake. Right. Yeah. That's a yeah. shame that you can spend that much time and get something really cool. And everybody's like, eh. And yeah, it was just one real. person and we got it straightened out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Why do people do that? Why do people have to rain on everybody's parade? You know, I, I was talking about this. Well, actually, I was talking to Jason about this earlier this fall. We had just had a conversation because we had gotten some comments on a on a podcast that we did. And uh, it just seems like people are out. And, and there are people that are flat, famous photographers that have made a name for themselves strictly by throwing other people under the bus without having any context of whether or not that person was in the right, in the wrong, not knowing, you know, they, people will throw out comments about you're way too close. Well, you don't know that that animal didn't approach the photographer rather than the photographer approaching the animal. You also don't know if that photographer was in their vehicle. You know, there's, there's just so many unknowns and, for somebody to take that completely without context, I'm not saying without, they don't have any context because they're looking at the image, but taking it outside of any actual context of what the scenario was, I think to me, that is unethical throwing these people under the bus because we live in a day and age where, you know, this cancel culture BS People are basically excommunicated based on the statements of one individual that may or may not be correct. And so that's, you know, that's why I thought it would be good to straighten that out publicly right away um, on my Instagram page. And then I also talked to that individual um, privately and just kind of shared those thoughts. 
because it just takes one comment, you know, out of context to create a problem for someone. And when this is someone's profession, you know, that's, that's defamation of character really. And that's, that's a civil liability for oneself. So I think people need to start being a little bit more cautious and a little bit more uh, conscientious about just throwing out statements without, without facts to back them up. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think Mike even mentioned, you know, we, we all spend a lot of time in the field trying to, you know, capture these images and these moments. And it's a lot of work. People don't realize how much work it actually is. Um, it, while it's fun, it's also a lot of time away from home and a lot of work. And we take pride in our integrity and the way we approach our, our craft, I think. All of us do. Um, and, you know, when somebody slanders you like that or makes some comment out of context, it really does kind of eat, eat it a guy, you know. And I've been personally involved in a situation like that with the Moose and Jackson, you know, where I was put on the Idiots of Yellowstone page and didn't even know it. Um, you know, and and it's all camera angles in the in the circumstances because there was moose close to the, the vehicle, and you know, up there people don't realize that you can actually be fined if you let the moose lick your car, let let the moose lick the salt off your car. It's illegal. So you know, in in the situation, the way it was, car between us trying to shoot the moose away, trying to be able to get to the vehicle so we could move the vehicle, and uh, but the, all you saw was a picture of you know a moose very close to the car and to. A couple of us you know and so anyways no names were mentioned there or anything people probably didn't even know who it was but it's regardless it's again taken out of context and all for somebody to get a bunch of likes and to you know mm-hmm. try to cancel people anyways yeah good point ron <laughs> so i'm gonna get off that soapbox and we're right we ought to just stop because this could become a we're gonna move on to different podcast stuff. right <laughs> <laughs> What we intended to do tonight was to answer some listener questions. Uh, Mark's been in the field and has been sending questions from Alberta. And uh, Jason, I believe you got one from the field as well. And then a couple of us have been able to get some podcasts from the field. So we hope you guys are enjoying that content and we'll continue to bring it to you. We're hoping to get a group trip here soon so we can bring you some some other content, some field craft type content as well. Uh, so we are, we are working on that, but it may be what December, I think before we get that done. So what I'm going to do is I'm just go ahead and play these uh, video, their video questions. And so we'll throw them in on uh, YouTube as well. When this posts on YouTube and they're coming from all different people, they'll give their name, location and their question and we'll try to hit it. Hey guys, Joe Desjardins here with the uh, Nature Photo Guys podcast. Uh, My question to you is, do you find yourself using a tripod less and less because of the in-camera stabilization coupled with the uh, uh, lens uh, IS? Just a thought. Uh, Be happy to uh, be curious to hear your uh, response. Thanks, guys. And that's a a good question. And and that's come up a couple times in the field. People have seen me shooting with no tripod and ask where my tripod's at. And I just, you know... I haven't needed one shooting stills for quite a while because you've got, and Joe's to Joe's point, he was, or he shoots a system that's a lot lighter than, than the Canon system and can afford to shoot with no tripod. But, you know, we're getting five stops of image stabilization in body. If you have the in body stabilization turned on, 
and then three stops with the lens. So the need for a tripod, I've shot as low as, and gotten sharp images here lately, as low as about one twentieth of a second. And I've even a couple times gotten an eighth of a second, but I've been leaning against a tree when I've done that, you know, just where you've got an animal in the dark or almost dark and they're just standing still. Usually when they, you catch an animal moving or something and they just lock up and, and just checking you out to make sure you're not a predator. Um, but shooting down to a 50th or one one hundredth of a second is, I don't even give it a second thought, even at 400 out to 400 millimeter. I know what Mike's going to say. Uh, Mike uses the tripod all the time. <laughs> well, and Doesn't I think change. we answered this on the last podcast. I think, Ron, you and I had the same question. So, I mean, we might as well answer it again. But I think there's a time and a place for both, right? If you're shooting stills, yeah. If I'm shooting video, it's always a tripod. And the heavier, the bigger, the the more you dread it, that's <laughs> the one you want. It's just... You just will get stability. But when you're shooting stills, and I think I brought, it to, brought up this same example last time. We were talking with a guy shooting black bears sitting in trees, right? So these bears will be laid up in a tree somewhere, and they're sleeping. Well, you can't, if you want to, you know, they'll occasionally open their eyes. So that killer shot is probably... A bear raising his head just a little bit and looking with an eye and then going right back to sleep. So you've got, what, two or three seconds. In that situation, it's much better to have a tripod locked on that pose or locked on that that composition. And then you squeeze the trigger and you're going to get the shot. If you're hand-holding it, I guarantee you if you have two seconds, you're not going to get that shot. Bring in because the, you're, yep. you're not going to sit there and hold that camera up in front of your face for what could be three, four, or five minutes for that little thing to happen. So in that situation, I say, yeah, you got to use a tripod. But if you're running and gunning and you're walking trails and you're trying to find stuff and there's a lot of action going on and it is an action type shoot and you're not waiting for one particular little thing to happen, then for sure, I think you want to go without a tripod these days. The cameras can do it. So do it. Yeah. I'll just say, amen. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. That's exactly how I feel about it. I, I still use a tripod quite a bit. Um, and it just depends on the situation. It depends. There's our slogan, right? So there it is. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, it depends. It really does. It depends on what your situation is. Are you shooting a situation where you can set up and be patient or are you running and gunning? And that's just depend. That's, that's what dictates which way I go. I think you should always have a tripod with you. Absolutely. Even on a, even on a video or on a fluid head for video, I just, what I do, if I'm shooting stills or if I'm going to shoot stills and I'm going to drop quick and I just get down to ground level, leave the legs closed up and then just release tension on my collar because then I can adjust. I don't have to worry about, I, I can use it more like a monopod. I don't have to worry about um, leveling the tripod necessarily unless I'm going to shoot video. But I, if I loosen that collar, then I can kind of manipulate it, get my horizon line straight and then still be able to shoot even if it's on that video tripod uh, as I'm moving through the trees. But if I know I'm just shooting stills, I'll pretty much always go without. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've been, just a side note because it does fit with this, the other thing that we don't talk about very much, and I've seen a few guys doing this and I actually tried it a little bit in the field this time, 
was using a monopod for a bigger lens. So it still gives you that ability to kind of set up and be stable while you're waiting for a shot to unfold, but you can also kind of run and gun a little easier. And instead of three legs to adjust, you only have one leg to adjust to be up and down and whatever you need to do. Um, I kind of like that a lot. I think I might try that more. Um, but the one thing I've been looking for to do that is I really want the ability to have something um, where you could just grab a trigger or something or a hand squeeze, release the legs and drop to the ground very quickly. Um, I have not found anything like that yet that's like a pro grade or a you know a, a high end or a pro grade a good quality uh, monopod system. Um, Primos uh, Hunting Company makes uh, one for shooting sticks, and they actually have one that's a dual or a single um, that you can just grab a handle and it drops. And it actually comes with an adapter for a, uh, a camera setup. Yeah, so that's something I've actually considered even doing. It doesn't need to be the most expensive or super stable situation if you're just trying to hold the weight of the the lens while you're waiting for a shot to unfold, you know, give you a little bit of extra stabilization. But anyways, just food for thought. If anybody's out there and knows of a good quality monopod that, you know, has that kind of a quick release type system, I'd love to please send in and, and respond or send us some information on. I'd love to be able to try that out. So Before you do the next one? We need to put in a word from our sponsor. I forgot. I was going to do that at the beginning, and oh, I forgot. Nice, nice. <clears throat> so um, Precision Camera is going to do a new little giveaway for Wild and Exposed listeners. And what it boils down to is you get a free T-shirt with any online order. So when you go in and you make an order, you basically just have to write wild and exposed and your t-shirt size in the order comment box at checkout and they will send you a free t-shirt with your order is this a precision camera t-shirt or yep yeah it's precision camera t-shirt just making sure and then if you find me in the field i'll just give you one absolutely i've got a pile of them that last time i drove through austin he gave me a bunch of t-shirts and i've been packing around with me so i'm excited to give them out so if you see me Holler and I'll give you one. On to our next question. Hey guys, it's Chris Gibbs from the Nature Photo Guys podcast. For someone who loves photography and video, is it better to have two separate camera bodies? One for photo, one for video? I recently picked up the Canon R5. It kind of gives you the best of both worlds. Is that the better way to go? Love to hear your thoughts and absolutely love the podcast. Thanks guys. Another good question from Chris. And having just bought a dedicated cinema camera and mike well mike probably should defer to you if you're because i mean usually you're doing video but if you're out and you're gonna you know you're there's a chance you're gonna take some stills um but there's also a chance you want to get some video what do you defer to i always go video um with a straight up video camera and then if i'm feeling like energetic i'll just throw in one still body and one still (laughs) lens and it's usually small because it's just all that extra weight so i know i can get a better still image from a still camera and i know i can get a better video image although the r5 and i'm some of the sony's do awesome video and unless you're shooting video for some high-end production somewhere that video is perfect out of those dslr cameras so I'd say if you're just in that, if you're not selling that footage or working on a big project, I'd just go with the R5. 
or the Sony, I don't even know what the Sonys are, but A1. there's plenty of them that do A1, good A9, video. A7, IV, yeah. Yeah. Lots oh, and of all of them. There. Panasonic's yeah. will do it. All of them will do it. So I think that's the way to go. The The thing I love about, like, the R5, and I don't use any, any R lenses, is you have the adapter that has the neutral density in it. And that's one thing I think you need to pay attention to when you're shooting video is you always have to get your shutter speed where it needs to be for quality video. So if you want it to look very cinematic, there's a way to do that, but you have to use neutral density to get your shutter speed down. If you're shooting stills, you don't want that neutral density because you want your shutter speed as high as you can get it to get the still image as sharp as you can get it. So that would be the only thing that is a little harder when you're shooting that one DSLR is make sure you're set up to do that. And it's not a fast process. Even with the drop-in filters on the EF RF to EF adapter, it's just a drop-in filter, but it takes the time to switch it out, right? Mm -hmm. So you could potentially miss the shot. So if you know you're going to shoot video, drop in the neutral density. If you know you're going to shoot stills, drop in the clear, and you're good to go. That's how I've tried to basically think through and set up my my rig is just to be able to shoot stills is mainly what I focus on. And then when I have a situation arise where I can get some video, I I just switch to video mode and use the exact same setup I'm using. So, but I'm I'm you know I'm definitely not doing video for any other reason other than my own personal use and the potential for some some use down the line or something. I'm not doing it for production companies and things of that nature. So, I think. You know, obviously Mike knows what he's doing, hmm. and uh, I, you know, I, I would say listen to what he said. If you're, if you're gonna want to use this footage for, you know, the big companies and production value down the road, you probably need to really think about investing in, you know, a, a forty-pound tripod and a twenty-pound video head and a, <laughs> you know, something, something like that setup. And that's just the way it is. So, yeah, I will say the having the C70 is the cinema camera that I chose to get for my commercial stuff but even having it in the field for wildlife it is so nice because number one just like Mike just covered you got the option of using that adapter that's got the neutral density built into it and if you do that it's got a super 35 sensor so it's it's almost the same as the APS-C so you're getting a little bit of a crop factor so you get a little bit more reach with your lens if you don't use their speed booster if you use the speed booster adapter you don't have neutral density but that's it gives you that full frame look now if you don't have neutral density or the capability to use it the advantage to some of those cinema cameras some not all the sony's and the canons um, i'm not talking about the reds because they don't offer this but they've got neutral density built into the camera. So the advantage to using those, you know, dedicated cinema cameras is you can just dial it in. You just hit a plus or minus button, dial in your neutral density, and you can always get your uh, exposure corrected. So there is an advantage to that. Um, running and gunning, though, and be able to, you know, even with the R5, and this is honestly... I kind of expected Jason to talk about this as well. It was honestly the reason that I switched back to Canon from Nikon is because of the video capabilities of the R5, the autofocus, the, you know, the body that you can, you can switch it so easily and you're getting 
quality video. I've yet to use the 8K format. I've shot a lot of 4K. Um, but that was my whole reason for switching back. And then the, the lens selection for Canon as well. Um, and I did consider the Sony. I just, you know, I felt like the, the Canon lens options were, were better. I could buy used lenses that were still in good condition and, and go with it. But that is definitely a consideration. If you're running gunning, you better take both adapters with you. You know, have one in a, Jason carries that um, hip belt basically and you could put one of those adapters in your hip belt along with your batteries and your cards and that kind of thing or in like a sling bag you know something small if you don't have a full backpack but you're going to have to have both with you if you're using just a hybrid system and shooting in the midday and expecting to get any video if you're shooting morning and evening you know honestly that's the best time for these hybrid cameras because you don't have to worry about it as much you can still dial in your exposure and and get what you want to get but midday, you're definitely going to have to have that other adapter with you if you're shooting a, a hybrid type system. That's a long answer, long and complex answer to that question. <laughs> well, and you figure it out. I mean, what are you doing this for? Are you doing it to make money or are you doing it for fun? If you're doing it for making money, then you really need to take a long, hard look at shooting video the way people want to see video. So that mm -hmm. means a tripod, that means use a neutral density, and then you just choose accordingly. The cameras you talked about where you can dial in neutral density, is they're awesome because it's fast and you don't miss stuff. Yep. If you do what I do and you're using filters, it takes time, and a lot of times you miss stuff if you're not set up. So it's it's just figure out what your style is and and go for it, and then figure out what your ultimate use is. Packing both of those systems around, though, you already talked about it, Mike. It doesn't take very long to realize it's a pain in the butt. So I try to decide which is going to be the priority and go from there. Yeah. No long lenses when you're packing your video camera. <laughs> no long lenses for the stills. I still take a long lens for the video, but not for stills. I think what we're going to do or what I was going to do and I think what we should do is when we get to this next trip in December when we all get there is it'd be cool to do a what's in your bag which depending on what we're doing if we're hiking then that's one setup if you're riding around in a car that's a whole nother setup right but it'd be interesting for people to see hey this is the setup if I'm doing stills and video this is what I can fit in this bag and this is how I do it. And that right there would give a lot of insight as to the reasoning behind all that, which would be, and we all, I guarantee you we're all going to do it different, right? So that'll mm -hmm. be something that we should do the next time we get together. Hey, it's Jamie. And I got a quick question about drop tines. Do you have any idea why they form and how some of them will have more than others? Well, That's luckily we have a couple biologists on the podcast today. <laughs> that, that would have been a better question for Mark. He sp spends all his time dreaming about antlers. Uh, <laughs> drop tines, part of it is genetics, part of it's age. Uh, if a, a deer or an elk gets to the age of maturity, sometimes they'll form extra tines or kickers, that kind of thing. 
uh, as they mature and continue to develop their antler growth. And then sometimes it's just a straight injury. So the we we talk about it often. The velvet is there's blood vessels underneath the velvet. That's what transports the nutrients to to grow the antler. And if they injure that velvet, sometimes the blood will start to pool. And when you see the big clubs, a lot of times that's exactly what that's from. Is the the blood will pool in the injured, and the velvet will repair itself. But it pools the blood inside the new velvet, and that'll cause those club tines in on some occasions but i think that's probably a better question for mark uh who's not here yeah or you know we have this cool thing called google that really can (laughs) (laughs) help a guy in a pinch you know when they're on a podcast and get asked a question they weren't (laughs) expecting and (laughs) did you look it up i did so real quick it it just supports what ron said and it essentially is the that most of the time it's due to genetic coding. Sometimes it can be from an injury, you know. Um, you see deer grow some interesting configurations when they're w- wounded. Um, sometimes, like, for example, we had a buck here in Salt Lake City. It was termed the cemetery buck for quite a while. And one year he got hit, I think it was on his left rear hip by a car. And that next year his right antler grew a double beam with some really interesting growth on it. Um, and then the, then the next year he grew back to be, he's still a beautiful buck, but grew back with just a standard, you know, straight beam and, or a regular beam and no, no double beam. Um, but the other thing that's interesting about that, if it's genetic coding, then why I'd extend the question, why do bucks sometimes one year they have a drop time, the next year they don't, the next year they have two drop times, you know, it's, if it's genetic, then you would think it'd be consistent, right? So I don't know if that totally explains it, but. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'd love to. The genetics gives them the potential more. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, it, it depends on nutrients also. So if you have, and I've, I've heard this from several biologists, if you have a spring actually that's drier, and they get more nutrient or more moisture, excuse me, from the vegetation than they are able to find in the field, they're getting nutrients while they're getting or mineral, you know, that kind of thing, while they're getting moisture and water from the vegetation. And so sometimes antler growth is better during those dry years, and you'll have, you know, those those other characteristics will show themselves. Now that's a lot of speculation because it's just it's based on observation, not necessarily laboratory science, um, but it's based on the observations of people that, do that for a living and have observed it on multiple occasions. Um, but like even the, the areas that we primarily photograph in are areas that are a little bit controlled. Um, so the animals are a little bit more habituated to human presence. And so they get a little bit older because they're not, they're not a hunted population. Those animals reach maturity. And I think that's when the true genetic potential can be unleashed is when a buck gets to about, you know, six, seven, eight years old, you're going to start to see if, if they do have that potential, you're going to start to see it. But I mean, if you see a buck that is a, you know, a three-year-old buck, not mature yet, and is already showing those characteristics, that's an animal you're going to want to pay attention to because they may present some really interesting configurations as they get older. That's a total wild card. I'm, I mean, it is. Yeah. It's 
I think everything you guys said is spot on. Yeah. But you watch, you know, when you do have the privilege of watching the same animal year after year after year, and you just see consistently different configurations, it's why, what, what is it? I think it, a lot of it is nutrients. I, I really do because that promotes a lot of the antler growth, but then there's all the other factors that fall into place. So I wonder if there's ever been a big study on that. I mean, it's not that important really, right? It's just more important to, you know, it's, if the animal's alive, then that's the most important thing. It's secondary to people for Mm -hmm. the antler size. Although antler size really makes a difference as far as, um, impressing females the ladies i think yeah so then that those genes are promoted more into that that uh population of whatever it is deer elk moose whatever Mm -hmm. we hope anyway i mean it's always fun to see those big animals but any animal that's mature i think you you have to respect because it takes so much to make it to that point, whether it's a buck or a doe, you know. So that's that's something to keep in mind, too. The older bucks that they might be a two-point their whole life, but they're obviously a mature, older animal. That one deserves a lot of respect. It's not going to get as much love as some of these giants, but but those animals deserve a lot of respect as well. Hey, my one of my favorite elk is the one I we've talked about him before I, ta- I call him the old man and that bull has had some he is not a very big bull matter of fact this year we found him again I was able to photograph him for my fifth year in a row and he his body size is smaller than the cows he was running that's how old he is really right and so you know he's not very impressive when you look at the you know, is how big he is and his antler configuration, all that. What's impressive to me about him is, like you said, Ron, the respect that he deserves because of he's still in it. He had 20 cows with him and was still very actively rutting. You know, I don't know if he's able to reproduce or not, but he was, he, 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 you know, he was acting like he could. Let's put it that way. Definitely so. giving it the old college try. <laughs> That's right. So, anyways, yeah. <laughs> There's so many questions that come up when you think about all that kind of stuff and it's just so hard to know i mean it's one of these things that i'm constantly asking myself well geez it'd be really cool to have satellite trackers on some of these animals so that we can follow them all year long and then some way to do dna tests to check to see if dna from this animal is in this younger animal i mean it's all speculation on our part but it's educated speculation but it's still speculation i mean there's no i listen to people all the time they're like oh that see that animal over there will never get bigger than that it's always just doomed to be i'm like really is it i don't know you know how can you say yes or no and to speculate and to be very certain i always kind of have to lift an eyebrow at that because I don't know that you would know that unless you did have a controlled population with DNA and satellite trackers and all this stuff. Just a one of the interesting things here is the place I shoot moose up high. Very seldom do I see calves. Um, you just don't see them. You, occasionally there'll be one a cow with a calf, and and it's not non-existent. 
But then what's good about this year with the snow forcing me to a different spot, all I see are cows with calves, but they're in a much tamer uh, habitat, right? They're just The weather conditions aren't as extreme. The predator conditions aren't as extreme. So I'm, I found myself thinking this the other, this morning, actually. I wonder if when they have a calf, do they then go here and hang out here? And then when they don't have a calf, did a calf get killed or did it get they just didn't have a calf or whatever if that's a situation are they going up to find these bigger bulls because that's the other thing down here where i am finding the cows with the calves there's bulls down there too but there's none of them that are huge so are the females like ah well i want to make sure that my genes get the best chance of survival so i'm going to go back up where these bigger bulls that are obviously old they're obviously uh, able to survive do I want those genes? I mean, it's just so interesting. It's super interesting, but there's just no way to know. No way to know for sure, but the, arm bi- the armchair biology is kind of fun. <laughs> it is. Yep. <laughs> the speculating. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, I always laugh at all the speculation. If you turn on and watch a football game or whatever, and these guys are constantly speculating on – and I'm always rolling my eyes. I'm like, oh, well, if this person would have ran this many or caught this many passes or whatever, I'm like, oh, my gosh. But then I found myself doing it with wildlife all the time. So it's just whatever you're interested in. My name is Jay Grunig, and I've been doing photography for about two years. The question I have for the Wild and Exposed team is when you're going through a park or you're out taking photos, when it's good light, do you keep going until you find something interesting, or do you work with what you have in the good light? Jason. I, I like that one. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly, Jason. That's a good question, and yeah, boy, I'll tell you what, that's always, the, you know, we, I use the term all the time, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out, and you're always questioning yourself whether or not you're in the right spot at the right time, and you always, as a photographer or videographer, want to take advantage of that premium light. Um, so I'll tell you what I like to try to do. Whenever I'm in a situation where I'm trying to shoot, um, I try to get into the area I'm going to be in as early as possible where I can, you know, it's way too early to shoot, but I can see. And then I try to kind of scout the area out and figure out where I want to be when the light gets good. Um, sometimes you can't, you scout the area you're, you're planning on and there's nothing around and then you're scrambling to come up with a plan B. And it's just the way it goes. But I can tell you that interestingly enough, back to that situation we had last Friday, uh, the situation was such that it didn't look like it was going to be a very good morning. Uh, didn't look like things were going to pan out. And so we set up and we're taking advantage of a bull and with four cows, a smaller bull with four cows that was giving us some looks. And when we were sitting in that very scenario is when the, the magic morning unfolded right in front of us. So, you know, it's, it, <laughs> you, you just got to play your odds the best you can. You got to use your experience, your past history, you know, your knowledge of the area you know, your, the behavior of the animals, what's going on at that certain time, get in there early, do some scouting, you know, scout the night before too. You know, if you're not having any good luck shooting that night before, uh, you know, spend some time right before dark scouting and trying to figure out where you're seeing critters at. Um, and that, I don't think that applies just to elk. It could apply to deer, sheep, moose. It doesn't matter. Um, so that would be my answer. And yes, I'm constantly in the back of my mind questioning whether or not I'm in the right spot for the right 
for the right situation if I'm missing something. So I think it's just part of being a photographer. <laughs> How about you, Mike? I always go for exactly what Jason said. You do all that scouting and you try to put yourself in the best position possible. And, you know, if the light's good and we have something here, this is it. But if I get out there and I don't have a plan and if I'm just out there, I for video reasons, I will take good light and any kind of animal over searching for the best animal. Because with video, I'm always trying to tell a story and I want behavior. I don't care as much about great big antlers or whatever the situation is. I just want behavior. I want to tell the story about this animal. So if it's a cow in great light, I want that. If it's a calf or if it's a coyote or if it's, you know, if I'm, if I'm going for moose and all of a sudden this coyote appears or a wolf or what I'm, I'm going to be on that in good light over, you know, something else down the, the road or whatever. So for me, good light, always good light and any animal will take precedent. I do have the FOMO too. Cause you're always like, ah, I might just, just spending time here. But in reality, I'm just trying to tell a story. So it's better to just lock on and take advantage of the pretty stuff with whatever i i think it depends a lot also on how much time you have if you're up there for a weekend you need you need a subject in front of you and you want to get the best images you can so you know the same thing that we've you guys have both talked talked about or touched on if you find good light and their subjects close you you hang tight um but if there's no subject close, obviously you're going to be off searching if you're short on time and just to get the subject. It also depends on what you're doing. Um, you know, Mike, with your with your video, you know, that example, I think it. you've got to tell the story. Otherwise, you just you're wasting time. And so if you have good light and a good subject, by all means, make it happen. I will tell you my most recent example um, up in that new spot up in Montana. It, it was a tough shoot because in the morning these elk were all headed to these bottoms and they were just gone. You just had a few minutes with them. And uh, in the evening it was tough because the the bend in the river where this bottom was was in shadow pretty early. I mean, it, it was in shadow way before any any other of the surrounding areas were. So I found myself setting up where the light was going to be and then just waiting for a subject to to give me the chance. And so that, you know, that is another example of, you know, just kind of chasing the light. Photography is all about light. That It literally means painting with light. So I, I think that we all need to be conscious of that. And I, I think if you have a chance to go see what Jason was talking about in that morning that they had and the scenario that they had, you'll see why they camped on the light. It, it is pretty, um, it's pretty tough to, to pass up on a scenario like that. They don't come around very often. And it was the same with Tanner and I with that bowl, you know, with the fog behind him. You just don't get that very often and get that dramatic silhouette opportunity. You know, Mike has talked about silhouette shots and and you're 
basically if you're setting up for a silhouette shot, you're only there for the light. That's it. The, if the subject's not there, you don't get the shot, but you're there for the light. And I think that's, that's the most important component. Again, depending on why you're taking these images. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I'm just going to add one more thing because you made me think of it, Ron. Um, and I think it's, I think this is important too. Maybe you are trying to get a very specific image in a very specific location, right? So in that situation, you do just need to be there camped out when the light's good. And then you're just waiting for the subject to show up. And I can think of scenarios like that. For example, maybe it's an elk crossing on a river or, you know, and they cross in this area generally, but you're just trying to catch it. Um, maybe they only do it once every day or two or whatever. I don't know. But, um, you know, that would be a scenario where you just need to, again, it's what are you trying to accomplish? And if that's what you're trying to accomplish, then, yeah, you just need to forget about the FOMO, set up and be there to get the shot, right? So, and I think some of Mike's shoots have been that way. Ron, your shoots have been that way, right? Where when you're doing shoots for a specific reason, that is a lot of what you're doing, right? Setting up and waiting for the scenario to unfold and for a very specific shot to unfold. So, and you you know you're gonna you know you're gonna sacrifice anything else. So I was gonna say something and I totally lost it. Oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. You know, I was referring back to one of my buddies here in Anchorage who just is like, he's like the moose whisperer. He just like you can ask him any anything and he'll be like, well. On this day or this week in the fall, I would go here. On this week in the spring. So I guess my point to that is, is while you might not have a successful shoot because you're chasing light, all that needs to be going into the memory banks because you just need to start storing all this information. If you plan on being at a certain area over and over and over throughout the years, you start locking in on, oh, well, good light happens right here on these this particular week every year. So I need to check that out first, always. Or I don't know. I just think there's never a waste of time out there. If you don't get on something, don't think of it as a waste of time. It's just information. And if you want that killer shot or if you want that, I mean, a lot of us, we luck into a lot of stuff. Every now and then you just, you're lucky, right? But if you really want to get the best of the best, sometimes it takes years to get it. So just be patient. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. Talk about that mental database all the time after, you know, you're building that database as every experience you have, whether you succeed or not, you are successful because you're building that database. But... Hi there, this is Eric. I just noticed on the camera here that I've got an aperture priority and a shutter priority. I'm just wondering what's the difference and why would you choose one over the other? Awesome question. And I know you know the answer, but let's cover it. Eric is a friend of the podcast and uh, he's definitely an accomplished photographer, but he does bring up a good point. And I've heard a lot of discussion on both of these and why you would use one over the other. So I'm kind of interested to hear you guys' thoughts. That's my that's Jason, my cop out you to shoot? let you go first. <laughs> so, so I'm going to be totally blatantly honest with you guys. I never have understood. I've never went and tried to understand what those priority modes do for me. And here's why: because I always shoot in manual. 
Uh, there's not a situation I've come across. Now, now I know I'm probably missing shots because in certain situations, aperture priority is probably a good option. And I thought, if I remember properly, aperture priority, <laughs> this is where I'm going to murder it. You can correct me, Ron. But I think aperture priority, you set your aperture where you want it, and then it holds that aperture and it adjusts your, you, and then you set, your, you set your shutter speed where you want it and it adjusts your ISO? No. Or is it the aperture? Okay, so. Aperture priority, you set the aperture and the camera right. chooses. You you sorry. You set the aperture and you set set your exposure compensation. The camera then chooses your shutter speed based on where your ISO is at. So it's still using uh, the three legs of the exposure triangle, but you're putting the priority right. on the depth of field that you want. Gotcha. Okay. And that, I would, I, that that's a really good explanation. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Because I've never understood. To me, it's like my shutter speed's adjusting. Mm-hmm. To give you know, if, for example, if an elk's in and out of the shadows constantly, right? It's very hard manually to be adjusting things on the fly to try to make sure your your um, exposure's right. So I know guys that will shoot an aperture priority in those types of situations. Mm-hmm. Is why I brought that up. But. So you do shoot just manual all the time? I do. I'm I'm getting to the point where even with my Canon, I know those buttons. I could in the, put me in the dark and I could run those buttons baby <laughs> so but what are you taking your meter readings off of or are you just looking at the back of the camera and you just know so let's use that example you just said so you have an animal that's going in and out of the shadows but you're shooting consistently in the light in the shadow are right. you just looking at the image real quickly and saying oh i need to i need a little bit more light or are you making that adjustment how i guess with yeah. today's no, camera, really with the WYSIWYG, or what you see is what you get in the viewfinder, that helps, right? <laughs> right, yeah. WYSIWYG. Yeah, the WYSIWYG, I like that. <laughs> um, you know what, though? Your point's valid, and, and now it is a lot easier, but even before I was doing that, what I would do is I would take a time. I would take, you know, if I was in a situation where there was that dark shadow and light situation, I would try to make sure I knew what my settings needed to be when they were in the light. And I would try to make sure I knew what my settings needed to be when they were in the dark. And so I knew if they go into the, if they're heading to the shadows, I need to crank my shutter speed down, crank my ISO up, you know, whatever it is. And and I need to be right in this area. Um, and then I would just rely on that as long as the light didn't change significantly. Um, but with the with the electronic viewfinders and the mirrorless, it really is cheating now. I mean, you really can just you know start scrolling through settings on the fly and what you see is what you get, you know, so it makes it a lot easier. But. So what are you shooting for then? Are you, do you put more emphasis on sharp pictures, which would call for a faster shutter speed, or do you put more emphasis on depth of field or does it just depend? You know what? It's funny. Kelly and I were, um, I was actually, we could talk, we, we have talked about this before, but Kelly and I were talking about this on the way home about that, you know, on a 600 millimeter lens at F4, you know, you really, you got, and this is something I had, I've had to learn to adjust for recently, is you really need to be, you need that, an elk, full size, you know, to be full frame. You need him to be, you know, 60 to 80 yards away from you in order for you to be able to get everything in, have some space for cropping and all that kind of stuff. And when you're at that distance, even with an F4, I think we did the calculation and an F4 600 millimeter, your aperture at, at F4, your depth of field, I'm sorry, is at like 11 feet. So, I mean, you've got tons of depth of field. I don't even worry about depth of field. I've always shot my lenses wide open, like in my, my 500 
F4 almost all the time. Um, and so, and I've never had a problem with what I need to be in focus being in focus. So to answer your question, I always focus on trying to make sure I have the as sharp an image as possible. So if things are, if they're moving quick, you know, I want to make sure I'm 1640, 1800. And even that, if it's really fast action, that's, you know, that's pushing it down to 1640, 1500. And then I just, you know, go with the ISO um, to get me where I need to be for my exposure. Oh, see, that's the wild card, right? It's not till recently where you could play with the ISO that much. I mean, right. it used to be where you go much over 1200, you're, it's bad. Now you right. can get away with a little bit more. So right. you're using ISO a lot. Right, I do. And I'll tell you what, with the new R, with the R5, what I really like is on that back wheel, I've got my ISO set up on my back dial. So, you know, or my, I'm sorry, I've got it set up on my, my thumb dial. Um, and the nice thing I like about it is if you scroll all the way to the left, you can set it up so that if you go past 100, it'll go just into auto ISO. So, and essentially, that's the mode I would shoot in in a situation like that, right? Because I can control my shutter speed where I want it, and then it'll just it'll adjust auto ISO if an animal's in and out of the shadows. So you're basically in a in a so they call it aperture priority and shutter priority. What do they call ISO priority? I don't know. It's just kind of auto, yeah. Auto ISO. But you're not auto because you're manual on your shutter speed and you're manual on your on your aperture. Uh, aperture so then all that's floating is your ISO. Yeah, but you're right. If you're going auto, the the issue that I have with auto ISO is, and Jason, I'm surprised to hear you say that actually because of the the way that you use the light. And if you go right. auto, sometimes the camera right. will expose it to zero, and you right. don't get that effect that you know that you're looking for with those animals coming out of the shadows or or you know with the shadows behind them that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and that's what I warn people against because if they're going through the trees, you're going to have proper exposure. It's going to expose it to to zero. Mm-hmm. It's going to take the ISO up or down, however it needs to, to expose it to zero, but you're not going to get those dark backgrounds. So if that's what you're looking for, you definitely don't want it on auto because you want right. to be able to control that. Um, well, and, and because that's how I use the light, I, I don't, sh- I always shoot manual. I do not even roll that past the 100 ISO mark, you know, because well, I don't there, want it yeah, to be an auto. There you go. Yeah. Uh, right. So you don't ever shoot on auto unless it's just like, I mean, if it's one of those deals where you've got an awesome opportunity and you know it's going to be sketchy, auto's the way to go, right? If you've got a, a grizzly bear riding on a wolf's back while they're talking to a moose, I mean. Chasing Bigfoot, yeah. Yeah, chasing Bigfoot, then auto all the way, right? On the you know what? No, I would, I would actually no, say no. No, running in and out right. of light. What I'm saying oh, is gotcha. if, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. if it's just sketchy yeah. light conditions, you know, it's, the shot is way more important than trying to. Well, you know what? Some funny, Mike, you said that, right? And I'm just sitting there thinking through it because th- part of it goes back to the way you meter too, right? Right. So the way I meter is spot spot metering because I'm, I'm trying to focus on the light that's hitting the field, the subject, right? I'm not worried right. about the actual yeah so because of that if you were going to do that i'd say you'd want to be in you know what's the metering mode that you're looking at the entire scene matrix you know matrix, matrix metering yeah. then then maybe then maybe that situation would you know work with the auto situation i would venture to guess and this is a guess but 10 <laughs> percent of the people spot meter really uh, wow. i think you're right 
I don't think people even really ever use that. I use it all the time, mm-hmm. and it right. is. It's the only way to do it. If you've got a little shaft of light that's going through a forest, and you know that's what you have to expose for to get it to show up, then you better either find some that same light somewhere else where you can get a meter reading on the matrix and then go to manual, or you better just lock your settings in once you set that spot meter and then and then compose your shot. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I've always shot that way, and it goes back to, you know, I talked about Harlan when he explained how that works and what I should be doing. That changed my whole mentality and the way I shoot, and that's that's what allows me to play with the light the way I do, right? If I didn't do that, I couldn't be getting the shots that I get um, in those really unique lighting situations. So, so the trade-off for you is you're going to miss things every now and then. Absolutely, and I do. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah, I do. But then the trade-off for the people that are using auto whatever, ISO or auto aperture priority or shutter priority, they're missing the special moments that are probably a better image, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're yeah. letting your camera, if you all you have is a shaft of light and you're letting your camera matrix meter, it's not going to pick out that one little shaft of light and set it. It's going to pick out the overall scene and it's going to be too dark. It's going to expose right. for the whole scene. Yep. Or it's going to be too light. It's going to be... If it's dark yeah. with one little shaft of light, it's going to be way too light. Yeah. Yeah, that, that unique lighting situation I had on that last Friday that we keep talking about, uh, those shots, there's no way I would have been able to get those shots if I was in auto. In auto. No way. I mean, it would have never worked. You well, know, and, and I think I do the same thing. I just throw all the meat. I don't even pay attention to the meter at that point. I just know my right. settings and I know what I'm trying to get. And it can be on auto or it can be on aperture priority, but I'm just going to override it. Right to get it yeah. right which is mm-hmm. which is manual <laughs> <laughs> it's manual in my head but the camera thinks i'm all screwed up <laughs> uh, it's funny <laughs> so i always shot in uh time value so shutter and aperture priority shutter and aperture priority are in on nikons on um Canon, it's aperture value, AV and TV, which is time value. So it's it's basically the same as shutter priority. And my thought process, and this is when I was first learning, my thought process was it's more important for me to know what the shutter speed is uh, to freeze the action or get the pan blur that I'm looking for or whatever than it is for the depth of field. And then... Somewhere along the line, I realized that I'm smarter than my camera. I know what I want it to do. And that's when I realized that I'm basically, I'm already shooting in manual. So if you use aperture priority or aperture value or shutter priority, time value, if you use those modes, they're they're kind of in between automatic and manual. But once you've learned to manipulate those modes to get what you're looking for you're setting your uh, exposure compensation in both of those modes and then your camera's making the adjustment either on you know if you're an aperture priority it's making the adjustment on your shutter speed or if you're in shutter priority it's making the adjustment based on your aperture you're you're already thinking in manual and it's a pretty easy transition to get there once you get to that point. Um, and I think manual basically just gives you 
all the control. I always wanted to be able to do both, to set the aperture and the shutter speed. Why can't I do that? Well, you can. You just switch to manual, and that's what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're doing. And then you control the exposure compensation based on both of those things. So, right. you, And your so eyes. These, these cameras nowadays are so far advanced or fancy that you can basically just set a custom setting for manual and a custom setting for aperture and a custom setting for shutter and then just remember those buttons and then yep you know change it up at will but back in the day you just couldn't do that so you just had to know what you wanted to do and make those adjustments accordingly and right. i'm glad eric is the one that asked this back in the day question because it's almost irrelevant at this point because the electronic viewfinders in these mirrorless cameras are so good that you just go to manual and just dial it in. You you can see what would you call it? Wiki 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 wig? Wizzy wig. <laughs> wiki wiki wig. <laughs> Wizzy wig. Wizzy wig. Yeah, so you're you're seeing your exposure. And so it's almost cheating. You don't really need to know how to use the meter anymore as long as you can look in the viewfinder and interpret what you're what you're trying to get but i i think it's still important for people to learn the differences not only the differences in those two but also the difference when you jump to manual i was always scared of it um you know when i was working with my mentor i was i was scared to jump into manual because he just i was so focused on perfecting this other thing that i didn't realize that my mind was already thinking in manual and so it wasn't that hard once I once I decided to just make the jump. And I'm like Jason, I shoot in manual all the time and I I shoot spot meter all the time because the only light I care about is what's on the subject. Yeah. Hey, can one of you guys well I guess I could do it too. I think that'd be a cool Instagram post, right? I would just like to know what the percentage of people is out there that actually shoot spot meter. Yeah, that'd be I'm a guessing. Fun little survey. I know it would be fun, right? Just because I'm totally mm -hmm. guessing. Well, I take it a step further. What you know, find out what mode people are shooting in, and then the metering. What metering mode do people use? Because I still I ran into a ton of people in the last couple of weeks out in the field that they're shooting their center focus point only, and they're metering mode is center weighted because they're shooting with that center focus point only and they've got that baby locked in and i just think you know what a disadvantage that that puts you in when you're trying to compose an image because while you know focusing and recomposing works great with people it doesn't necessarily work great with animals because every time that animal moves, you got to go back and focus and recompose and focus and recompose. And I think that, uh, you know, just leaving your focus mode, um, leaving it running the whole time, you, you want to be focusing wherever that animal is and then use your focus point then to compose. I wonder if there's a good, you know, there's, a bajillion tutorials out there. Have you guys ever ran across one specifically for wildlife? I wonder if that would be worth doing. I mean, it would be a lot of work, but I think I agree with you 100%. That, it would be good. 
I don't think, I think, well, you can tell just even on Instagram, you can tell everybody that doesn't move their focus point. Servo is the word that I was looking for. Leave your, leave your focus motor in servo. So it continues to focus. Right. Which with wildlife is, you've got to, there's no reason not to. But I was amazed at how many people don't and don't think about that. So I do think it would be, I do think it would be good information to get out to people. Well, we need, doesn't your, uh, Atomos monitor record the screen? It does. Mm -hmm. All right. So so when we get together, let's do that. Because yeah. we could, if we're going to be down shooting at the place we're talking about shooting, there's going to be midday where there's nothing going on where you could actually shoot this video, which would be kind of cool, right? Because then you could go over spot metering, you could go over all those different modes, and then you could also go over uh, moving your focus point around mm-hmm. and compose that way. And I, I don't know if people just don't know or they're i think it's just it's more comfortable i think honestly i think that's the answer to why why people do it is i know how to do it this way and so that's the way i'm going to keep doing it and they don't realize what opportunities are out there for improving your images you know just by changing a couple really small things yep Less less things to worry about and think about in their minds, right? Right. And some of it's just experience and time shooting, I'm sure, too. You know, I mean, I can mm-hmm. remember. I've learned so much, and I continue to learn new things all the time just about how to approach things and how to use my camera better. And, you know, I, and for, for example, I've there for a while. I um, To your point, back on the exposure, and it's kind of cheating um, with the new mirrorless cameras, I you, used to just believe that, and then my first photos were coming in were pretty dark and... I wasn't getting the exposure I really wanted, and I I noticed that I actually need to pay attention to my exposure compensation mm-hmm. still, to really try to nail that exposure you know right where I want it. And again, I'm being real nitpicky. I'm trying to be on that high end of the exposure range without blowing out highlights, so I can get the best colors that I want. Um, you know, and it, it's most people I think are just shooting to try to, you know, whatever's in their viewfinder they get. And it's good enough, I'm sure, right? I mean, I'm talking real nitpicky stuff here. But if you miss it too much, then you may not get the exact colors that you're looking for. Or mm-hmm. you can't bring those highlights down enough, you've blown them out. Or you can't, you know, bring the shadows up enough to give you the the look that you're looking for. But um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I learn stuff all the time. I mean, it's it's constantly learning, and uh, you know, in these cameras, the new technology, <laughs> it brings a whole new level of things you have to learn. You know, and all the settings to set up. I mean, I've got an issue right now where I, excuse me, I know for a fact that my, and I need to go. It's a setting in my camera. I'm sure I just need to go figure it out. But usually, when you can set it up so that your metering, your spot metering, follows your focal point. So if you move your focal point, it follows it and it's metering there. Right now, it's all it's center. It's focused on that center spot, and it was driving me insane this week because and I just didn't take the time to go through and fix it. I just knew that, and so I would move my camera and make sure my exposure is where it needed to be, and then I'd move my focal point. But anyways, it, it, those are just little nuances that just make you mm-hmm. a faster. You don't miss shots. You're you're where you want to be, right? Just little things that you have to figure out about all this new technology too but that separates an average shot from a a great shot right well, I mean, figure really that is. out if you have the evolution of that yep. learning curve 
you you're gonna jump way far way fast if you just take the time and you're right it is just one i've seen that in the menu it's just one little click of a button yep so if you know where it's at let me know (laughs) i'll go find it but (laughs) yeah it's in there i saw it i don't but it's totally the way to do it especially if you're spot metering right exactly it's the difference between frustration and excitement too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get home it is. with tears in your eyes or get home <laughs> with tears of joy because you got the shot you're looking for. Because I you know, going back to the um aperture and, and shutter priorities, what people don't I, I touched on exposure compensation and presetting that in those two modes. What people don't realize is that your camera is trying to bring everything back to eighteen percent gray. So if you've got your exposure compensation to zero and you've got a, you know, this beautiful dark background, like, you know, I'm thinking of Jason's elk shot. You got this beautiful dark background that's taken up most of the scene and you're in matrix metering mode. Your camera is going to blow that animal out because it's trying to bring all that black back to 18% gray. So it's going to add light. So to properly do it, you've got to drop your exposure compensation like minus two-thirds to minus one almost to get that same effect that Jason got in manual mode. And that's likely where he was when he shot it, probably about minus one. And and then conversely, if you're shooting an animal on snow, you get frustrated because you get those images back and a lot of times they're gray. Because your camera sees all that light, all that snow, and it's trying to bring that image back to 18% gray. Well, if you didn't set your exposure compensation to plus one or plus one and a third, that image is going to come back and it's going to be gray. Now, you can fix that in post, but again, anything that you do in post adds not noise, but it it adds basically Well, it can add everything. It manipulates the digital, the pixels. So it's adding imperfections to that image. So you want to get it right in camera. So when you're shooting on snow, you're in that white background. You've got to add light because your camera is going to try to darken it. So that's why you have to shoot plus one or plus one and a third to keep that animal properly exposed or that subject properly exposed. And that's what people don't realize. You can accomplish all that with your histogram too. You can. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use that exposure compensator. So if you're just, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know, it's just too much. I mean, there's many ways to do it. So don't get frustrated. Just find whatever one works for you yep. and just make it work. But that but like, speaks to us doing some sort of a tutorial, a tutorial. that would yeah, be, for sure. you know, basically... I see. I cringe every time because I just know, and I don't know that I could explain it very well. <laughs> right? Yeah, hundred percent. We'd, we'd yeah. get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ten hours later, you buy this uh, <laughs> this ten hour tutorial that we could, you know, someone that knows what they're doing or could someone that can present well would get it done in five minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. So yeah, good, excellent question, and it, it leads to a lot of different. A lot of different things but i i i guess my advice would be as quick as you can and as quick as you can comfortably 
learn to shoot in manual because it opens up a whole new world for you to images yep. that you wouldn't or are going to have a tough time. I'm not going to say you can't get them, but you're going to have a tougher time getting them in any other mode. And honestly, this is one of those, if you're going to spend money going on a trip, doing a trip with people, you want to find somebody that's technically sound because you're going to get a lot more out of it. You might spend more time talking and learning and not come home with as many shots as you would on a photo tour. But if you're going to spend that money anyway, spend it on somebody that's going to be able to teach you something while you're in the field as well. You know, more of a workshop type thing than than just a tour. I, I think there's a lot of advantages to that. You're going to cut your learning curve exponentially if you spend your time with people that know more than you. And that's what I try to do. That's why I hang out with you guys. <laughs> Shut up. And I'm you, serious. And you still get all the shots. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, I think let's just do a tutorial because I think that would. I mean, I, and the only reason I bring it up is I just don't know if there's anybody. I don't know that I've seen something specific to wildlife. There's plenty of stuff on landscape. I don't think there's I have. plenty of stuff on people. There's plenty of stuff on weddings. I don't know that I've seen one that is wildlife oriented. I mean, it's probably yeah. out there. Maybe it is out there, and I just haven't seen it. I never went and searched for it, but there's so many little nuances to those changing conditions. Let's say you're shooting a football game at night, and the it's dark, and the field is lit evenly. You don't have to change anything, right? right. It's just the consistent light throughout. What we shoot, right. it's changing from the minute the sun pops up over the horizon to all day long it's it's a moving target all day right as clouds roll in Every and roll cloud, out as yeah. animals are in in the trees and out of the tree yeah it's constantly changing so yeah that's what makes it fun that is what makes <laughs> it fun keeps it challenging and i've learned to just not even really look at my camera because I don't want to get excited about an image until I get it home and get on the computer, and then I can get excited. <laughs> I don't chimp at all anymore. Uh, just I'm, of, I'm just, I mean, I, I mean, I do real quick just to make sure it's I'm getting what I'm hoping to get, but I do not sit there and go through my image and go, oh, that's a good one. Oh, boy, I can't wait to, you know, because you I just have learned. You don't star rate while you're nope. in the field? <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Plus I have a rule so where so much battery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I won't look at anything until it's on two drives. I have oh that, wow! You know, I won't even. You know, I'm and it's killing you because you want to see right. what you just got, but. <laughs> That's honestly the this commercial stuff that I've been doing the last couple of weeks. These guys are wanting to go grab dinner. The other guys that are on these shoots, and I'm like, no, I got to wait till my download's done. How long is that going to be? 45 minutes, an hour. And then I got to get it going on another one before we go eat dinner because I want it I want it on two drives before we, before I leave. So they get frustrated you know what? with me. Are you using ShotPut Pro? <laughs> ShotPut? Mm-hmm. No. Not it's yet, a... but I probably am as soon as you get done talking. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're like me and you won't look at anything until it's on two drives, there is a program called ShotPut. There's actually three or four programs. I don't know the other ones 
off the top of my head the, the names of them, but shot put will take from your acquisition media and put it identical on two drives all at the same time. Hmm. So you don't have to go through that backup process. It still takes, it takes longer than the right. one drive for sure. Yeah. But it doesn't take as long as two drives or dragging it to one, then dragging it to another. Yep. So, and then it does a checksum at the end to make sure that both of the drives are identical. So when I'm shooting all this stuff for BBC or whoever, it that's a requirement. I have to do it that way. They want that. Hmm. So they know that hmm. the drives are identical, but it works for stills. It's when I first started using it, you could just buy it and you were done. Now they've moved to a subscription. Of course. So you have to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh I don't even know. I think it's like 50 bucks for three months or something. I don't know exactly. So but you just use it, it so it's going to cost projects. you. Yeah. I use it for everything just because I have it. But um, the other one that you called about today, Ron, is a good one too, which is that Chronosync. But it doesn't necessarily do while you're Automatic. ingesting. It more does it after the fact. Like if you're like, did I transfer that stuff? Or are these two drives identical? Chronosync will actually make sure those drives are identical. So what you're saying, Ron, is you ate alone in your room all week. Often. <laughs> yeah. Packed a lot of granola bars. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yep. And I got a uh, – I will say we were talking about doing a tutorial, and I am going to – I've got um, my – five favorite Lightroom tools that I'm going to say this publicly so I can make sure that I have it ready to get out. And I used images a long time ago. We asked for images that we could do a review on and the software that we had at the time did not allow us to, uh, to do that. And we're to the point now where we've got some new software that we're using. I think we can, uh, we can do those photo reviews successfully, but I use some of those photo review images and went through and edited them the way that I would have edited them. And I used all those five favorite tools that I have. So that is going to be coming out on the, the YouTube channel here in the next couple of weeks. By the time you hear this, it should be ready to go. Whoa, you're setting Dang. the bar pretty high there, partner. Well, I've got it. I've got it done. I just need to go back in and add, add a couple of things. Um, before and after and and then uh you know show there's some keystroke shortcuts that i talk about and i'm just gonna do a little tiny clip to to throw those in but otherwise they're pretty much ready to go and those images that you guys sent in were great uh i am sorry that it didn't work out the first time but again we will be using those images and and we will have that capability here in the very near future after just switching the the software that we're using that wasn't as much of the software as it was the nut behind the wheel, and that was me. I messed because <laughs> we did it. We did the podcast. It just, I yeah. it was just too much to try to manage, and I yep. failed miserably. It's all right. We'll get it figured out. Because yeah, we that, had fun. We did have fun, <laughs> and, and they were they were great images too. That's what. So I wanted to make sure that we got them out so people could see them. But cool. Anyway. All right. Well, thank you guys for uh, 
another good week, another good podcast. I think there's a lot of good information, great questions on this one. And uh, check out the nature photo guys with Joe and and Chris and the podcast that they're doing up in uh, Canada, both out of Alberta, I believe. Um, But they're very prolific photographers and, and have some good information up there as well. Thank those guys for the questions. And we do have some more questions that we're going to get to. Uh, if you have questions, make sure that you get those to us and we can get them on the, uh, the next question podcast. And go buy a t-shirt, go buy a t-shirt and, and then make t-shirt. sure when you buy anything from precision camera, use that wild and exposed code, put your t-shirt size in and they will send you a t-shirt as well. And they're actually pretty nice. They're not cheesy yeah, t-shirts. They they're actually pretty nice. They're black. So if you like wearing black. And remember, it depends. <laughs> it <As> always <laughs> depends. <laughs> You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always... Thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.